Good evening. Before we start tonight, I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silence to honor and reflect on the life of Burnaby RCMP officer Shailen Yang, who was killed in the line of duty on October the 18th, 2022. Over the past five weeks, five police officers in Canada lost their lives. The loss of their lives is one of many signs that crime is on the increase. Think about it, five Canadian police officers lost their lives in the line of duty. Five people, five police officers in five weeks. In 2021, we lost two police officers nationally. In 2020, we lost three, and in 2019, one. We lost more police officers in the line of duty this year in five weeks than we did over the last three years. What's also very disturbing is that the day after Constable Yang was murdered, another example of violence we see exploding in our cities played out at UBC, where a gang member was gunned down in the parking lot of the golf course. A day later, another gang killing in Langley. Gang violence and homicides are making headlines. So are theft and vandalism. And then there are random acts of violence that are putting people on edge, including me. Uh, Amy, I'd like to ask you to, first of all, play this video that we call Broken Window. Many of you may have seen this. This is down at the corner of Abbott and Hastings. This man was picking up a rock and he's throwing it through windows. Didn't matter to him that he was being videotaped. Um, he was complaining that, or saying that the bank wouldn't give him a job until he was angry. And he decided to take his anger out on the windows. It's an enormous cost. Uh, and it's disturbing to see this. And in a moment, we have another image that we've added to this just from yesterday. You go down there now, and all those windows have been boarded up. It looks like the place is deserted. Um, how are we supposed to be attracting business, creating a sense of community when we see this kind of scene? These images right now, some of them come from John Neat, who's one of our panelists. The rest of them uh, have been sent to me, or I was riding my bike and I saw uh, those images. And then, you know, somebody vandalized the Olympic torch. What for? We see people going into stores like in this example. Um, they're setting up the, the staff to be robbed. Uh, it's disturbing. Um, and we can't help but ask ourselves, what's going on? Uh, how is it that possible that somehow uh, we're seeing this level of uh, theft, violence, aggression continue to increase and the impact that it's having in the city is, t is robbing us all of the ability to enjoy our lives. You know, that poor woman right there, she's just been assaulted. Um, and all she was doing was just doing her job. That's not the kind of city that we want to live in. It's not the kind of country we want to live in. So, this is leading to a sense that the streets are not safe. It's no longer a given that they're safe being on the street. Take me, for example. I was walking down the street in downtown Vancouver the other day. I found myself checking over my shoulder three or four times when I sensed somebody was a little too close to me. 
I've been confronted by people and I've had to like shout them down and tell them to move off. And I watch other people do the same. And I'm not mistaken by this because earlier this year, the public safety indicator reported that serious crime is on the rise. The number of calls to 911 has increased more than 12% according to Ecom and the number of non-emergency calls that went unanswered rose to 18,680. That's the calls that went unanswered. What's confusing about this is that if you look at the crime stats, you'd be saying, well, it doesn't look like the numbers are going up. But Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer says, you know, part of the problem is people aren't reporting all crimes and that's distorting the stats. So how are people feeling about this? We, has, we asked Mario Canseco of Research Co. to uh, run a poll and tell us what the view is from people in the region on where we're at with crime. Amy, can you run that clip for me? The Mario? way in which residents of Metro Vancouver look at public safety has changed over the past four years. In 2019, more than a third of residents perceived an increase in criminal activity in their community. These numbers grew every year, reaching 49% in 2022 the highest level recorded in five years of surveys. At the same time, we have never seen more than one in 20 Metro Vancouverites say that crime is decreasing. In 2019, fewer than half of Metro Vancouverites, 43%, said they feared becoming victims of a crime in their community. By 2020, the number rose to 48%. In the past two years, majorities of Metro Vancouverites acknowledge a fear of crime in their community. Perceptions of safety are different when Metro Vancouverites ponder a different endeavor. Over the past two years, a third of residents say they would feel unsafe if they had to walk alone after dark in their own neighborhood. Housing continues to dominate when we ask Metro Vancouverites about the most important issue facing their municipality, but public safety is on the top four across the entire metro area and reaches 18% in Surrey. Residents of Vancouver are more likely to be concerned about drug overdoses than safety. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchCo. Tonight is the third of our series, Conversations Live, and we are really fortunate to have an extraordinary panel that will speak to policing, repeat offenders, the impact on businesses, and the general sense of uncertainty around safety in the community. As well, we have Vancouver Sun reporters Kim Bolin and Dan Fomano who will add their insights. So allow me please to introduce our panel. Dr. Amanda Butler and Doug Lepard are the authors of the Repeat Offenders Report. Vancouver Deputy Chief of Police Steve Rye, National Police Federation President Brian Sove, JJ Bean President and Founder John Neat, and Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman. Now, just before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that we are coming to you from the traditional lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations who have lived and continue to live on these lands. As well, and very importantly, I wish to express my gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. They are Stem Cell Technologies, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD Developments, the Port of Vancouver, Investment News Network, and Research Co. And our media partner is the Vancouver Sun, and we thank CKNW for its support in helping us raise awareness of Conversations Live. 
And I especially want to thank Apogee Public Relations and Oh Boy Productions. For viewers online, and I can see that you've already found this, you will see a Salido dialog box on the screen. Please feel free to post a question and I'll get as many of them uh, addressed to the panel as possible. Okay, <clears throat> so what's going on? Have laws softened? Are the courts to blame? Has society become soft on crime? What role did defund the police play? And are we falling down in harm reduction? Those are just some of the questions that I want to be putting to the panel tonight. I'm going to, however, first ask Dan Fumano to join us virtually to give us his reflection on the issue of crime and the effect that it had on the election results. Dan? Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, so I feel that, um, you know, it's pretty uh, clear that crime and public safety did play a significant role in BC's municipal elections that have just wrapped up uh, earlier this month. Um, we definitely saw it play out in Vancouver um, as a big election issue. And then it was also, you know, policing and public safety were major issues in other municipalities like Surrey, Kamloops, Kelowna. Um, and one thing that all, all of those municipalities had in common was that um, the mayors that were elected were all promising big changes around policing and public safety. In Vancouver, Ken Sim beat the incumbent Kennedy Stewart, promising to hire 100 more police officers and 100 mental health nurses to try to improve public safety. Uh, of course, in Surrey, Brenda Locke beat the incumbent Doug McCallum promising uh, to reverse change course on uh, the transition from the RCMP to a municipal police force. And then you had mayoral candidates in Cam Kamloops and Kelowna also really pledging to take a tougher on crime kind of approach. Um, and then another big issue in the Vancouver election, or at least a big story, was the Vancouver Police Union uh, making political endorsements for the first time in the union's history, I think, the first time anyone could recall that the union had taken that step. So because it was unprecedented, it was newsworthy. And it, there was some backlash, which was, you know, not entirely unforeseeable that some critics didn't like the idea of the police taking this unprecedented step and making an endorsement. Um, you know, some people said that, but if it did, the backlash did have an effect, it doesn't seem to have had, couldn't have had too much of a negative effect for Ken Sim, the recipient of that endorsement, because he won a resounding win and a very strong mandate now to lead. So I think crime and public safety are going to continue to be big issues in these cities going forward, um, especially, yeah, as we say, in these big kind of regional hubs where new leaders have pledged a change of direction. Uh, and as you talked about earlier, you know, the stats showing crime increasing, um, but then there's other stats and the mayor of Vancouver or the outgoing mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, was sometimes criticized for relying on these stats, saying, you know, the stats show in the aggregate crime hasn't increased, saying that Vancouver is still a very safe city and doesn't rank that high compared to other BC municipalities, other North American municipalities. And all of that, you know, a lot of that is true. But as you mentioned, the, the statistics only kind of paint part of the picture. And even if there is just a feeling that people have that their streets are as safe as they used to be, those feelings matter a lot to people and they matter in elections, they matter to voters. And if people aren't feeling safe in their community, obviously that's a significant problem. Thanks, Dan. 
Steve, to you, do people have a, a legitimate concern right now in the city of Vancouver? Sure. I mean, I grew up here. I think many people have grown up. Vancouver is a safe city. It's a confident city. Uh, you can walk about and compared to other major cities across North America, we're, we're doing pretty good. The problem is uh, the perception uh, is uh, fueled by some upticks on stranger and random attacks and, and uh, increase in the downtown east side has increased. It's burgeoning for various reasons. Uh, lots of people coming out from back east, but that's all impacted and as Dan said, the perception. And fear of crime and perception sometimes are as important as the stats. So even if the stats show one thing, if you're, if you're scared, like you said, you know, walking down the street and you're yelling at somebody, uh, the police uh, have to address that as robust as actually fighting crime. And I think it all converged here the last year where... Um, um, you know, broken people throwing rocks at windows, uh, young ladies working in stores, uh, getting attacked, fueled, not the numbers so much, but the perception that it's getting, uh, getting worse. And I think NYPD, New York, went through this in the 80s. Uh, they argued, hey, our numbers are good, but people, if they can't leave their house and they don't feel confident to going to a movie and wanting to spend money, if they don't feel confident spending, uh, going shopping or for dinner, that impacts the city, impacts businesses. People don't spend money, it decays, and it's the start of what happened to Detroit in the 70s and 80s. So fighting fear and perceptions are as important as, as fighting the numbers, but Vancouver is a safe city. Okay, but that perception does have an impact on business. Anita, are you seeing that the, the, that same sense is uh, uh, on the street in Surrey and what is the impact that it's starting to have on members of the Surrey Board of Trade? Well, I think, uh, you know, to your viewers, uh, you know, Surrey, you can fit the cities of Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby in our geographic limits. We're a, a very spread out city. Uh, we're not seeing, uh, you know, that fear and that perception as much as I'm hearing uh, as it is in Vancouver. Uh, but uh, there are, you know, with, uh, you know, different global and uh, economic circumstances that uh, people are facing, uh, that's when crime escalates. And, uh, and we are hearing that. And, and that really impacts business sustainability. Uh, that impacts uh, the ability of people walking the streets, uh, the livability of our cities. So it's not only about uh, business sustainability, it's about ensuring the livability of your residents and of your workforce. And in Surrey, uh, to a certain extent, not like Vancouver, uh, you know, we are experiencing some level of crime. Um, but um, but I, I think, you know, because we're so spread out, our needs and our solutions are a bit different. Different issues around crime. Kim, to you, what's happening well, day after day after day after day? We see gang-related violence, and it's real. This is it's not something... It's very real. Yeah. I mean, you look back 20 years in the city, and I'm sure... Uh, the police officers uh, here would be able to uh, confirm this, but to have shootings was quite rare. Like we'd be like, oh, there was a shots fired, wow. Right, and now that's considered sort of at the low end because you know we have people injured in shootings, we have people killed in shootings. Last week we had five murders in one, in five days, right? 
And five murders in five days, including the police officer who was stabbed to death. The others were gun cases, right? So uh, it's a huge issue. And I feel like the general public thinks of crime as what's happening on the street and the fear of marginalized people. Sometimes it's real, sometimes it's not. Like I think we're looking at this as a them and us mentality when it comes to dealing with parts of Vancouver in particular, where you do have you know, large groups of people who are capped out or whatever. And uh, yes, there have been random attacks. You know, they, they're always in the news. Uh, the backstories of some of the gang shootings aren't in the news. And I find that quite troubling because, you know, I think that we need more police attention, more prosecutors looking at organized crime and gang violence and uh, working at that end of the scale, which really is leading to death and destruction across the region. Brian, you know, your members, you're the National Federation of uh, Police in Canada, have faced this growing uh, real violence amongst gangs. But we're also seeing, you know, what happened to poor Constable Yang uh, last week. She was attending to what, at one point, we would have gone, okay, this is a bylaw issue, and she lost her life. What's it becoming like for police officers? I think it's getting ugly. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for that moment of silence. Much appreciated. Um, but I think uh, from an RCMP perspective, from our members on the ground perspective, uh, none of these stories are new to us. Uh, and I mean, I'm the union guy at the table here. So obviously, I have a biased perspective about how our members work. Uh, but I think it, it really demands a whole of government holistic discussion approach on to, to what do we want the police to do and what do we want in Canada, Vancouver, Burnaby, um, Grand Prairie, Alberta about a social safety net for Canadians. And that's been a challenge. You know, what we have seen is, and I keep, I say it often enough, is that I don't think over the last two to three decades, whether it be police leadership, no, you know, uh, I'm not pointing fingers at the chief or the deputy because it's pre their time, or police labor in Canada, I don't think we've been good at saying no, right? We have not been good at a selling our collective successes uh, to the Canadian public. And I don't think we've been good at saying, no, we don't have the resources or we shouldn't be doing that. So it has allowed this creep of changes in governments, uh, changes in funding formulas to whether it be healthcare, whether it be psychological care, whether it be homelessness or affordability. And those services have disappeared and the creep has come down to the police officer. So, I mean, I saw a quote out of uh, the United States, which is not Canada, but it's a really good quote at NYU, where it's, the police are not first responders. They're the only first responders left. And that's, it, it resonates to me because, you know, your police officers now, all of our members are carrying Narcan. All of our members are doing the nasal naloxone kits. All of our members have uh, access to an AED in their patrol vehicles or quickly. Those are all medical issues. Those are all paramedical issues that we should be relying on for ambulance services. Now, our members serve across a vast geography in Canada. The majority of Canada is not like the Lower Mainland. But really, what's the expectation we have 
when someone goes into distress or when we're having a bylaw issue. Is it a police issue or is it not? And the Canadian public, British Columbians, residents of Surrey, residents of Vancouver, need to decide and have that discussion. And I'm happy to have that discussion about where we want to go into the future to ensure safe streets and feel comfortable walking in the dark. That is a big part of the question, isn't it? Because at what point do you say uh, this is, has to stop falling on the shoulders of the police all the time and that those other agencies have to be there? But one of the things that I know is that as a mental health worker or as a bylaw officer, you don't want to go and make those visits into areas where your own health could be at risk, so you turn to the police. So, you know, what has happened? Doug? Well, I think that's true, and one of the frustrations that the police have is that there's lots of conversation about we need to move away from the police responding to these incidents, and we wrote about that ourselves, about, you know, looking at new initiatives that we've seen on the North Shore and New Westminster and so on that have civilian-led teams, and the police have been very supportive of that because they didn't ask for this work in the first place, but the reality is the way that it is right now, so many of the incidents involving the mentally ill that police are attending is because there's either violence in the environment, like in the downtown east side, where it's sort of inherently violent going into SROs, or the person themselves is violent, and the police are being called by emergency health services, or a social worker, or a psychiatrist, or some other professional to say, uh, even fire department and ambulance say, we don't feel safe going in until you've already done that. You've gone in and made it safe. So it's sort of a conundrum for the police, but the reality is that we have seen this increase in the intensity of aggression, particularly in downtown cores. And you know what happens, we've been talking about crime stats, but the reality is, is that you know we have seen very significant increases in certain types of violent crime, for example, in downtown Vancouver involving assaults and weapons and so on. And those can be obscured by the fact that overall crime rates have been going down because they're driven by high volume crime. So if uh, people are staying at home because of the pandemic, their house isn't being broken into, there's better guardianship, they're not driving their cars into the city, that's another high volume crime breaking into cars. So those crimes are going down but the crime severity index has gone up for the last five years, and it's going up very significantly in some cities like Victoria and Kelowna. And, you know, in Vancouver, they've had problems as well. And so, you know, whether a city is safe, that is a relative issue. And I've lived most of my life in Vancouver. I was born here, I've raised my kids here. I've never felt unsafe uh, in most places in Vancouver, but I do now because the reality is, I mean, I've been like you have and probably others on this panel have been confronted by someone who seems to be completely out of control, spouting nonsense and being aggressive. And, you know, the, the story that's got a lot of publicity is the fact that Vancouver is talking about four stranger attacks uh, a day. That's a huge number mm -hmm. of innocent people living very low risk lives who are being attacked. Uh, even with gang violence that, you know, Kim is an expert on, generally they're killing each other, although occasionally there's a tragedy with an innocent person being caught in the crossfire. But, you know, in what world is it okay that even before the spike that we had now, that in 2019 we only had three stranger attacks a day in Vancouver? That's pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
you know, I think that we have to have a hard look at not only what we can do at the sort of the, you know, the end result, you know, where we can do better in terms of policing in the courts and prosecution and that sort of thing. But one of the things that Amanda and I tried to stress is that, like, we will not arrest our way out of this. So they're going to have to deal with the underlying causes that are driving this, which is inadequate housing, inadequate mental health care, and a host of other issues um, that are the key to solving this or doing much better, because we're not going to arrest our way out of it. Right. So, Amanda, it's one of the other issues, the way in which uh, the law is being administered here in British Columbia differently than in other jurisdictions. Yeah, so I mean, Doug and I referenced um, some opportunities that exist in other countries to just uh, flag that unfortunately in Canada and in BC, our courts have very limited options and opportunities to um, to deal with uh, somebody who is presenting with mental health and substance use concerns unless they meet the very high threshold of being not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder. And those are people who tend to be in an active state of psychosis at the time of their offense. But for many people, um, their mental health or substance use issue will be a contributing factor to their offending, but they will end up um, being deemed responsible and put into the criminal justice system that is so ill-equipped to meet their needs. And so, you know, we gave the reference of the UK where, um, you know, in the UK, sentences are actually, sentencers are actually required by their guidance. If somebody is facing a prison sentence and they're suspected to have a mental health concern, they have to review a medical file and they need to consider alternatives because you know, the person might, there might be some moral culpability issue, but there's also the the recognition that a prison sentence is uh, disproportionately harmful for somebody who has a serious mental health condition because they're not going to have their, their needs met in that setting. So then the question remains, well, where are they going to have their needs met? Well, right now, nowhere, because we actually don't have a good, robust alternative system within the mental health system to uh, to provide long-term uh, stability and supports and the rehabilitation needs that, that people have. And so, um, yeah, that was one of the things that we discussed that I think is, is a major part of it, but we also have to build out that continuum of mental health care because even if we make those changes within the court system or within our legislation, we still have to have those services available for people to go to, and right now we don't. Well, we also need to have a place to put somebody who has offended uh, but the jails are limited capacity right now. Uh, what effect did COVID-19 have? Well, I mean, we saw a lot of people obviously, um, you know, released from prison. We, uh, there were a lot of attempts to keep people out of remand because of concerns, of course, around people getting COVID. Um, but the capacity is not with respect to the, the space necessarily in prison. It's the fact that we don't have adequate services and uh, psychiatrists and psychologists to provide that care. And, and also just sort of the culture of the way that we operate prisons currently, um, they're not places of healing, right? Our principles around sentencing or denunciation and deterrence, and we haven't um, changed sort of our thinking around the role that the criminal justice system can play in the continuum of care the way that, say, Norway has. Like, they've built prisons that are based on principles of, of, of health. Um, and so th that's a direction that I think that we might consider going. But in terms of, of COVID-19, for sure, we saw a lot of people, um, you know, released from custody. And for folks who have short sentences, by and large, that's not going to make, you know, a big difference. What has, I think, really impacted things for sure is Bill C-17, 
75 and, and the attempts to really um, reduce remand and, and the principles of, of restraint. But we haven't then said, OK, well, now what are we going to do in community? It's fine that that's the, the shift that we need to go um, because we've recognized that there are concerns around remanding the population. But then how are we actually going to make sure that, that we're keeping people safe in community? And we, we haven't done that. John, as you listen to this, uh, and you think about your business and the impact that you're having, um, what are your thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> the immediate thing that came to my mind when I heard that was, so what about the accountability? Uh, and I know it's a complex problem. Uh, I, I don't know what the answers are. I know what I face. I know that you know, customers come to my stores and want to sit in peace and have a coffee and meet with a friend or a potential date, or all the different things that still happen in coffee shops, which are wonderful. But then, as they're sitting there, they hear something happening in the washroom. And then they find out that, you know, the, the toilet has been utterly destroyed. The sink and the mirror have been destroyed. There's holes through the wall. And they're going, what kind of place are we in? And we're talking at Dunsmere, right around the corner here. That happened six months ago. There's staff that <clears throat> come to work, and our bakers start at 5.30. At Woodward's, the baker said, we're not coming anymore. We're not coming at 5.30 because we came here, there was a glass broken, there was somebody inside, we don't feel safe. So, but Woodward's has security. <laughs> and we have a, you know, a, a place that's open to the, pub to the public because the glass is broken. And we are informed about it, but informed about it, so we arrived at 7 o'clock. Um, and again at Woodward's, I, I think I, I sent it to you, like just the other day, some guy comes out of the baseball bat and just breaks the window. Doesn't even try to enter, just wants to break it. Um, we've had issues, so we have issues with people trying to steal from us, people that are doing, I, I'll call them mental health issues. Like, I mean, who goes into a bathroom and destroys it? I don't know why, what's the purpose of that? Or other people that are mad at us because we don't have public washrooms. We had a fellow in January that had a bowel movement in the middle of the busy store on Main Street, like at 9.30 in the morning. Because in the store? In the store, in the middle of all the customers. Whipped his pants down, just said, you won't let me use your washroom? Here you go. Here's a little gift for you. Uh, so that makes it very unpleasant to work. Uh, and unpleasant for someone to want to stay there, which is not a so my, and then you have um, vagrants that are, you know, uh, there's one thing being like, I think it's still legal to be outside on the sidewalk uh, and ask for money, but you're not allowed to come into a place of business and harass the customers there. And then when we try to get those people to leave, often we're left with a situation that can be potentially violent. They're very upset with us. Like, how dare you tell me I have to leave because I'm asking for money? My sense, and I, I've been J.J. Bean since 1996. I've been uh, doing coffee in Vancouver since 79, supplying whole, wholesale coffee throughout. And my major clients, wholesale customers, have been downtown Vancouver. So I've spent so many years in a car, often five, six hours a day. And what I, so I not only have the car situation, but I also have, you know, the 24 locations. So I'm dealing with thousands of customers a day. But my sense, and I haven't heard this word used, but I have a sense of lawlessness, which 
doesn't feel just like that picture of that guy in the, on the Toronto, Toronto Dominion Bank, TD Bank down in Woodward's. He's doing that because he doesn't feel there's going to be any, any impunity. If I do go to jail, it'll be for a night. I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'll just say that I'm mentally ill uh, or whatever it is. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just angry. Uh, and so he doesn't get the mentally ill stigma or doesn't go to jail. I, I don't know what it is, but we need, there's a sense of lawlessness that the city of Vancouver changed the, uh, most of you know this, but right down uh, Maine and Hastings, everywhere else in Vancouver, it's 50, Ks an hour, 50 kilometers an hour. There, it's changed to 30K because we don't want to hit all the people that are jaywalking. So you have to slow down right there. It's the only place in all of Vancouver, but they've said we can no longer Jaywalking is still on the books, by the way, as a, as a crime. But we will not enforce that in down there. I was arrested for jaywalking about 30 years ago, which is fine. Uh, but I just think everybody should be. <laughs> uh, there's a sense of lawlessness. And that would be the sense that I have, whether you're any of those homeless or a drug addict or a thief or mentally ill. And they're all different people. They're not all the same people, of course. They're all different issues that can't be, you know, looked after with one broad brush. Uh, but they have a, there's a sense of lawlessness. Uh, I believe you were talking about in the 80s in New York, uh, a, a mayor that's not popular nowadays to say his name, but he uh, took the attitude of there's lawlessness here. So graffiti has to be removed instantly. Vagrants will be arrested. Jaywalkers will be arrested. So we need to make a big deal about little crimes because then the big crimes don't happen. I'm not sure if that's the answer, but I'm just telling you that. Yeah, but Steve, do we have the capacity to uh, respond in that matter? We're talking about broken windows and uh, yeah. put a cop on every corner. And, you know, the policing model has not changed in, in the Western world from Peel to George Floyd. It's the models that stayed the same, but the pressures have grown exponentially. So when you talk about lawlessness, uh, that perception is there, and in some neighborhoods it is uh, edging on that. And the reason is the police are taxed doing all the other things that everyone else mentioned, and so now we're spread thin instead of focusing on what should policing look like in the 21st century. Have not had somebody step forward leadership-wise and say, hey, listen, don't want to do this anymore, but at, in the middle of the night, we're still the only ones that can do that. So, because uh, it's innate in policing to respond and help. And while this stuff is going on in the background and things are happening uh, crime-wise, we have to do everything still. And so to get away from the lawlessness, we have to relook at getting back to core policing, but we can't do that because we need all the stakeholders working at optimal at an optimal level right now mental health or it's the hospitals uh you know uh, government leaders what it, nothing's really optimal right ecom police training we can go on and on everything's at uh there's cracks in every component of the system right so you, you can i just make one point sure and yeah I, I love what you did at the beginning here but if that had been opposite if a police officer had killed one of those people in the tents we would still be hearing about this. Yeah. We wouldn't hear, we, we, police, we lose a police officer and it's like, let's, uh, you know, call of duty. This is what happens. But I think, with, and you mentioned it earlier, the defund the police thing is caused a perception on the police where they no longer are in charge. 
and they have to be totally sensitive to the people that might kill them versus if they kill somebody else and I, I lose a job. I, like there's this whole mentality shift, which I think is a bit of a problem personally. So you mentioned Sir Robert Peel and, you know, one of the tenets of his uh, philosophy towards policing is that you police with the community. You don't mm -hmm. police the community. Brian, have we lost, well, both Brian and Doug, have we lost that connection between policing with the community rather than policing the community? Well, I think uh, I've heard New York a couple of times already. And I made I mentioned earlier that, you know, Canada is not the United States, right? And and I think we need, for your viewers and, and, and a lot of Canadians, um, I think we need to draw the distinction that we have two completely separate legal systems, right? In Canada, our legal system is based on rehabilitation. In the United States, it's based on incarceration. So, you know, you've heard about three strikes and all that stuff down the steps. That doesn't happen up here. Everything and every principle and every uh, legal decision and what judges consider and what police officers consider with diversion programs, if they're available, et cetera, is all about rehabilitation and restoring that person into the community. Have we gone so far down the road in... Um, policy decisions and Supreme Court of Canada decisions and charter rights that the system itself now values the rights of the offender more than the values of the community and the safety of the community? I think some would say yes, um, but that's the system we have. And it will take years to overhaul and, and, and return that. So hence why, you know, we started with it's a really valuable discussion, and, and Dr. Butler and Chief Lepard, the work that they did for the province in their rapid report, I think is fantastic. And it's a great stepping off point for the province of BC and hopefully moving east into other provinces to sit back and say, we've been missing the mark. And as you said, if your community doesn't feel safe, or if they call 911 and the phone doesn't get answered, or they call the non-emergency line and the phone doesn't get answered, are they gonna report those stolen license plates? Are they gonna report the broken window on their car when I'm waiting for the cops and it's cheaper not even to claim it through ICBC and just to pay for the replacement on my own because my deductible is gonna go up. So you don't report that little crime. Um, and Vancouver had a great initiative. I used to live uh, the downtown east side, Strathcona neighborhood, fantastic neighborhood, and I love it. Um, but um, the sign was, nothing in the car, please don't steal the sign, I think. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, and people would put those in their windows and put them on, on, on the front dash because I think that's the, that was the sentiment and it touched a nerve of the community in Vancouver. So is the community engaged in community safety? I think a lot of them want to be, but do they know where to go and do they feel that they're going to be hurt? So, Chief? Well, first of all, to the issue of, you know, policing the community rather than policing with the community. I have to say that, you know, the police officers we talked to, which was many, you know, they were still a little bit shell-shocked at, at the response to the murder of George Floyd in the U.S., um, that people didn't see the profound differences in policing in Canada compared to the U.S. and that most of the things that the public has, you know, that 
the public wants to see in policing in the U.S. have existed for years here in Canada, whether it's, you know, a focus on de-escalation or being a guardian, not a warrior, um, you know, training, education, all the rest of it. And so that really did cause, you know, police, I think, to step back a bit. And also the, uh, the impacts of the of the pandemic were pretty profound on everybody from, I mean, physical, you know, making physical contact with people and so on. Um, it had a really great impact. But the one thing that I wanted to mention is that you brought up, do we have the capacity in our jails? The reality is we've got lots of capacity. If that were the answer, and it is partly the answer, it's not the answer, but it is part of it. I mean, we had, um, prior to the pandemic in 2019, we had, uh, 15,000 people in provincial custody. We now, last year, 2021, we had about 9,000. So about a one-third reduction. And that was because, as Amanda mentioned, you know, judges did not want to detain people, especially before vaccines. There was the sort of the twin hit of Bill C-75, which urged restraint. There was a case called RV Zora, same thing from the Supreme Court of Canada, urging restraint. But it didn't actually change the law around what the criteria is to hold someone in jail. The primary, secondary, tertiary grounds about, you know, making sure they appear in court and that they don't continue the offense or commit another one, and also protecting the, the reputation of the administration of justice. So it is frustrating, I think, for everybody to see these people that we've seen on the news every night who have been arrested and charged. The police are very good at, at identifying suspects, investigating, gathering evidence, arresting them. But the police work only has value if the rest of the equation is there as well. And so when they do that and they arrest them and they're released, well, then the onus is supposed to be on the accused to show why they should be released again if they're uh, arrested again. But we see them being released over and over and over. And, you know, we interviewed many retailers and hearing from them that, you know, we keep seeing the same guy back in our store who has a no-go to our store and now he's been released again and he has another no-go to our store and he has another no-go to our store and they're not being detained. So the remand population, and I'm not like advocating that we need to go back to, you know, everybody should be remanded. There's all kinds of reasons to practice restraint. But one of the things when John talked about lawlessness that we certainly saw from interviewing people around the province is this sense of emboldenment that I'm not going to be held in jail and therefore I can do what I want because I'm going to be released the next day if, if I'm even held. And so other provinces, their remand populations have basically crept back up to what they were pre-pandemic and we haven't seen that in BC. So it begs the question about, are our judges different here? Is our Crown not working hard enough to seek remand? I'm not suggesting that they're not, but I have to tell you the response that we got, at least from the representatives of Crown, when we suggested that, you know, maybe now that the pandemic were at the other end, that you could be a little more assertive at seeking detention for the most incorrigible offenders who breach their conditions over and over and over again, and I have to say, we got pushback on that about whether that was appropriate. And so, as I said, you know, arrest and jail is not like the solution, but in some cases it is part of the solution. Uh, it is the one way that police have to manage offenders in the community who have been released on bail after they've been charged for an offense is that they have meaningful connect, uh, conditions. 
where there's a nexus to the offense that they committed, whether that's a curfew or not carry break-in tools or whatever it is. And if they breach those conditions, really the only tool the police have is to arrest them for it. But if Crown, for whatever reason, some of them very legitimate, decides not to approve charges for those breaches or not to seek detention or judges choose not to detain them despite multiple breaches, well, then you are going to get that sense of lawlessness and emboldening of some offenders, the worst offenders, and they are the ones that ought to be detained. Right. So Crown and judges the court, it's easy for us to point our finger at them, but is there not an overarching societal view that gets brought forward by the uh, people that we elect into office who then help to set the tone that judges and Crown are also working within. We heard Dan at the beginning talk about the fact that crime was a big issue. Dan, are, are you still with us? Like when, when you hear uh, um, these arguments um, or these points and you think back to the, the, the mind uh, set and the way in which politicians were dealing with crime, do you think that voters are right in saying, we think that you were off base? Well, I think maybe one of the challenges for municipal officials, I'm, I'm not trying to defend any uh, mayors or councillors or municipal politicians, but um, obviously these issues are so complex and, um, and, and there's kind of different issues here. There's this street lawlessness and street disorder that a lot of municipalities are seeing have seen rises in the things that uh you know we're hearing about in businesses um and and a lot of that obviously is uh connected with mental health um, you know doug and amanda's report talked about people with acquired brain injuries there's a lot of people who, out there who have uh brain injuries um in some cases from surviving drug overdoses obviously the, the toxic uh, drug supply has increased the, the number of these overdoses. So anyway, this is a long way of saying that there's all these really complicated things going on, many of which are way, way outside of the power of a, a mayor and council. But inevitably, when people are upset with what's happening in their community, they blame the mayor and council, which which is understandable to some extent. I guess, you know, that's who's in charge of your municipal government. And that's the level of government that people feel closest to. Um, more so than their MP in Ottawa or their MLA in Victoria even. And so that's where people want results. But as Doug was saying, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff has to do with the criminal justice branch and the prosecution service and the judges that, you know, the, obviously no mayor has control, at least not to, I mean, mayors don't have control over the judiciary and what kinds of sentences judges are handing down. So it, it doesn't matter how tough on crime your mayor is. Like they, they can do things like set the police budget um, or they can have influence on the police budget, but there's a lot of stuff they can't do. I was speaking with the pollster, uh, Steve Mossop from Leger, who had, they had found that a lot of people in Vancouver and Surrey, they focused on those two cities specifically and also in Metro Vancouver, but a lot of people were very unhappy with their municipal governments. They wanted change. And then when they asked what things they were unhappy about, a lot of the stuff they were unhappy about were things that were typically outside of the traditional jurisdiction of a municipal government. But but that's what they were mad about. And so they wanted to, a change at City Hall. So, I mean, yeah, Doug and some of the other, and Amanda and the other panelists can speak much more eloquently about 
the causes of some of these things, but um, it, it's obviously it goes way beyond what a mayor or a council can control. And then the sort of the more serious, high level organized crime, the stuff that Kim knows so well, uh, you know, and covers so deeply, uh, a lot of that stuff as well. I mean, these are big international kinds of operations. Um, so, but, you know, understandably people are upset um, about what's happening in their communities or what they fear could be happening. So one issue, uh, Kim, <laughs> okay, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I would want to push back a little bit okay. uh, with respect. Um, you know, gang killings often involve extremely young people. They're people that could have had their whole lives in front of them. We had a 14-year-old boy who was already caught up in a gang murder in Vancouver and then got killed three days later or whatever in Surrey. So we're losing a generation of people to gangs and organized crime. Some of them come from homes where some of the same issues that people in the downtown east side are facing, mental health issues, substance use disorder issues, are in those kids' lives and they end up getting caught in this cycle. And it's also not like gangs and organized crime are here. The downtown east side is down here, right? Because as we know, the gangs have their own people working in the downtown east side. They're often substance users themselves who get a little extra product because they're working for the gangs. They inflict violence on people who are their customers in the downtown east side. So a lot of the violence, like people are concerned about, wow, a guy punched me when I was standing at the bus stop. It's upsetting. Obviously, it's upsetting. That person has nothing, she doesn't know, stranger attacks. You know, but there's a lot of violence inflicted on others in the downtown east side by gangs and people at the street level in the drug trade. You know, and a lot of that goes unchecked, right? We've seen shootings in the hotels down there. Uh, so I don't think it's, you know, like either or. I think there's a continuum there, right? And, um, you know, one of the gang trials going on right now in BC Supreme Court, you know, two people killed. One of them was Randy Kang, involved for years, started in South Vancouver. The other fellow, was not the intended target. He was the brother of the intended target. So is that fair? Is that right? Uh, so I wanted to sort of set the record straight a little bit on that. I don't think it's either or. And again, with respect, when you're talking about people being let out on bail, I've spent a lot of time sitting in courtroom 101, usually waiting for some big guy who's been charged with murder or major crime to make his first appearance, right? You sit there for an hour. You see person after person appearing uh, making their first appearance, people from the downtown east side charged with, you know, breaking a window, for example. You hear a little bit of their life story. And honestly, if people spent some time down there, I think they would have a different perspective on this whole thing. If we had a, a woman charged with manslaughter uh, for allegedly drugging uh, men and escort, and one of them overdosed and died, and she was released on bail. We have, like, if you go back to 2009, Doug, you'll recall that crazy time in gangland. Uh, anyone found with firearms was being held on remand. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, gun guys getting caught with guns, they're not being held um, in jail, in pretrial custody. Uh, some accused killers are not being held uh, in pretrial. So if you've got people charged with those very serious crimes not being held, I don't see how you can expect some guy that has broken several windows in a row who may have serious mental health issues to be held in pretrial. Like, it's just, it's got to be, you know, balanced, right? Now, there should be other measures to deal with that person 
who's, uh, you know, repeatedly ending up in the court system. And those are the things that you guys are talking about. Like, I, Thursdays at Vancouver Provincial Court is drug court. Drug court is, I always take my journalism students there, it's the most amazing and uplifting thing. Uh, if members of the public should get down there and check this out. These are people, they're charged with trafficking, but not usually nonviolent crimes. And they can choose to enter this program, right? So they don't get sentenced until the very end. This is a very intense program where they get counseling, where they get uh, drug rehab, uh, where they get assistance in longer term housing. And every week they check in with the judge who's talking to them maybe on the phone and you're sitting there, oh, how's your daughter Sandy doing? And it is so personal and it's so different from any other court program or court case that I have sat in on. You know, and we need more things like that that are alternatives to the system that's really dragging people down, right? And I wish we had a prosecutor here <laughs> because, you know, that, that's really a big part of this situation right now is the criminal justice system, how cases are prosecuted, when they decide to lay charges, when they don't decide to lay charges, right? And it'd be good to have someone who could speak from that perspective because I'm sure there's a lot of good intention, as you said, but, you know, it is extremely frustrating for the public to see people, the revolving door, if you will, people constantly uh, being let back out on the street. I mean, the, the prosecutors have to follow the law. I mean, they're getting guidance from legislation and the Supreme Court of Canada. And but as what often happens when you've got case law coming down from the Supreme Court of Canada is that things are muddy for a little while until there's clarity. And usually what needs to happen and what Crown is actually committed to and saying that they want to do is to appeal the right bail decision to get some more clarity from BC Court of Appeal about what are the boundaries around when someone should be detained and when someone should not be detained. Because I think that there is just a complete lack of clarity right now, and I'm sure judges are struggling with it, and Crown are struggling with it. And I have to say, I mean, when we interviewed Crown, I mean, they are very aware of what Kim is talking about and very aware of these people's lives and how tragic many of them are. And I'll, I'll just say again that, you know, I'm not suggesting that that is the answer, but there is a small number of really incorrigible people that that may be the only tool that actually works until we have some better tools, which is what we talked about, alternatives like they have in the UK, you know, hospital orders for people that are suffering from mental health and drug addiction, where they can be diverted from the criminal system, uh, diverted from a provincial prison like we have here and go to a secure hospital bed where they can actually get treatment. And we wrote a lot about the importance of looking for upstream solutions like that so we don't have to rely on warehousing people getting no help in a provincial jail. Okay, but going back to my point about uh, we elect officials, they made decisions that uh, set out policies. And one of them was the Vancouver School Board. They decided to take the uh, school liaison officers out of the schools. Uh, what was your reaction to that? Well, I'm a product of uh, my school liaison officer because aside from police-related leadership you showed in school, all three of them, I had three, uh, school liaison officers are valuable. They, they influence positively, they help, they coach sports. Uh, there's lots of items that aren't captured by you know, the traditional definition of a school liaison officer and their duties. There's all the unspoken positives that are there 
These are very dedicated young officers working in uh, schools and working with families. And uh, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, uh, probably more than anecdotally, the principals and, and, and the leadership in schools miss them. And uh, it's, it, it's, I mean, Doug knows it well. I mean, it's a, it was a mainstay for decades and decades that had a lot of positive influence. And we're gonna see how that plays out over the, over the longer term. You know, there's gonna be uh, some students, maybe a small generation of, that never see a school liaison officer. And uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, there's impacts there. You got any thoughts on that, Kim? Well, I've heard good, and I've heard some kids uh, don't like them. So, you know, it's like anything else, right? I mean, I did hear a lot of people say that when they were cut, perhaps there could have been revisions to the program first, right? And, you know, people want it to evolve. Um, you know, I know a lot of young people uh, of color who had concerns that were generally related to the situation in the United States. Why are police in schools? So it wasn't necessarily those officers and the program here in Vancouver that people were reacting to when they said they wanted them gone. And you know, I, I think it's important to reflect on what's happening everywhere and see if you can't change things to make them, you know, more what is needed at this point in time. Carleton University did research into the school liaison program in the Peel Regional Police and independent academic research and found that the program was very positive, that it benefited all kids, but that the kids that it benefited the most were the kids that were most vulnerable, uh, had most likely to be targeted by gangs and so on. So, you know, there's lots of anecdotal positive and some negative, and I agree with Kim. I mean, it really came out of that sense of outrage. Uh, from the U.S. and, you know, the sort of the hostility that was generated towards police. But the best evidence says that school liaison programs well run has a very significant impact and it has a significant positive impact on those who are at the most risk of going the wrong way. A few years ago, I was doing a story with an Indigenous member of the VPD uh, working through the school liaison program. And he had set up a program to get two or three youth at risk, working with him to rebuild a car, a 1937 Vancouver police car. And I said, so does this work? And he said, you know, in the school setting or in different areas, I, can get, I can't get close to these kids at all. But, you know, they want to monkey wrench around with a car. And he said, when you're lying on your back under a car and you go, can you pass me that crescent wrench over there? Like, you're now doing something together. It breaks down barriers. It opens up lines of communication. How important is that? You know, Brian, you hear these stories all the time. <clears throat> I do, and, and uh, you know, listening to uh, Chief and Kim and uh, such, you know, it, it made me think about um, how, A, I mentioned earlier, I don't think we, uh, the policing community generally, have been very good at telling those stories. Um, and, and it also brought up the thought process, you know, listening to Dan about the, uh, the politics of the situation. Um, and, you know, 2022, I think we're in a bandwagon mentality. Um, you know, uh, I never knew anything about Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And I've heard that there's a new one called Twitch now that I'm like, what the heck is that? Uh, I'm, I, I'm just learning about TikTok and then now there's Twitch. So, so you know, the need to know, the need to know immediately, and, and Kim will probably appreciate this, uh, 
And the fact that even with our own members, when we send updates, we're very careful with the headline. <laughs> because a lot of people are busy. Do they read the article? It used to be we grew up in a generation, my dad was a teacher, my mom was a librarian, they really enjoyed reading their newspaper and the articles fully for, for great informed debate and discussion with their kids, with their colleagues, with their friends. I think we've lost a little bit of that in society. We can probably all agree that the Twitter verse and, and, and the headline verse um, and people share things on social media and take perspectives politically, socially or, or, or whatever, just by reading a headline. Um, and, you know, you're seeing a lot of it in different political circles where it's A versus B based on this article that I don't know what it contains, but the headline is salacious and it appeals to my general philosophies of life. So again, back to, I don't think the police generally have been good at telling their stories. Successes and admitting to failures, because sometimes it's hard for those that wear a uniform with shiny buttons to admit that we are fallible and, and, and we can make mistakes, but we learn from those mistakes. But now we're in this world of instant gratification. So now we need to grow to learning to really tell our stories, but also to be able to tell them like that and maintain an audience and maintain engagement and maintain support for school liaison officers. My sister is a teacher in a high school. It's not in this province, she's in Quebec, a different world, I know, don't hate me for that. But, um, <laughs> but she loves the school liaison perspective and the ability to have a police officer on a rotating basis coming through there because our teachers are that front line with those kids and trust me they know the ones that are at risk they know more about their family life and their home life than most parents actually do so you to have that resource available in a school elementary high school or even universities uh, or vocational programs etc is invaluable to the public but we need to sell it and be able to sell it to the public in 280 characters or less <laughs> so that's a learning curve. john can i ask a question uh amanda's too uh, young to remember this but i used to live uh on riverview crescent so there's riverview hospital Across the street from Riverview Hospital was Colony Farm. So the, as I understood, the people that were well enough to, that, that could work at Colony Farm actually would help produce the vegetables and food that went into Riverview Hospital. The government, in their wisdom, 40 years ago or whatever it was now, closed 80s, it down. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, and yet, when I had this issue at Main Street with uh, a number of people using our washroom and causing problems and it went on the press and all that kind of stuff. The deputy mayor called me and met with him and he presented a report that he showed me that all the mayors, Surrey, all of the North Shore, all the mayors, mayors had signed, presented to the premier saying, we need another institution, not necessarily Riverview, but somewhere to send people that isn't just right. a secure spot in a hospital. We need a designated facility. I'd like to know Amanda's feeling on whether or not we need that. And you talked about political will. I would suggest that's a very strong political will. It has to happen on a provincial level. It's not a mayor's decision. It's a premier's decision on whether we reopen a facility like that and dedicate people to 
I, I love the concept of Riverview and Colony Farm of having this place where people could work in the field. And Amanda? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the working in the field aspect of it. Um, Colony Farm still, you know, exists. The forensic hospital operates on Colony Farm, so people are, are still treated there. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly Doug and I heard from lots of people around the province that there, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to return necessarily to like the asylum model of the, the 1960s, but there is definite recognition that for a small portion of the population of people who have complex disorders um, that they need and quite frankly deserve dignified uh, and appropriate care in a setting that is actually designed to meet their needs and our hospitals currently um, are not. And in fact, the way that our hospitals are set up uh, you know, they're, they're understaffed, they're overstimulated, they're actually environments that can exacerbate distress and can cause more harm for people who have mental health concerns. So one of the uh, suggestions in the report, one of our recommendations is around considering something like low secure units, which are part of the continuum of care in other countries, and they would have the, you know, the right level of security and staffing that would address not only um, the mental health concerns or substance use, but would ideally have more wraparounds and re rehabilitative supports and it's really sad hearing from you know service providers across the province who are desperate to get some of their clients into long-term care and a lot of people who would willingly go um, and that need the kind of stabilization and support that we're that we're not able to offer so I think that there that across the board there there is a recognition that our services are completely insufficient and that we don't necessarily need to return to one asylum ideally there would be regional services that people could get closer to home we don't want everybody having to come from Prince George to the Lower Mainland, um, but there, there are models in other places that we can consider and develop here that would fill that gap. So there's an interesting question that's come in, and uh, Anita, I'm going to come to you uh, to start the answer on this. If the city of Vancouver could devote a Herculean effort to put on an Olympic Games, can we not devote the same resolve to end the cycle of homelessness, addiction, and crime within the city? And when I think about the Olympic Games, business was there. Like they went, we're going to help drive this and make it happen. Does business have a role to play here? And do we start to reshape the way that in which, you know, as a business, you think I'm here to you know, provide services and do this. But do we not all have to be a part of this solution? And is there some way that businesses can help to contribute towards some kind of an answer. And I'm putting it out there, not sure of how that would even be possible. Well, there's a couple of things there. You know, number one is when I started as uh, the president of the Surrey Board of Trade, we partnered with the RCMP in Surrey, Fraser Health, uh, City of Surrey bylaws. We went to every town center and spoke with uh, 50 to 70 businesses. And every town center was facing a, a different perspective, um, a different issue, a different resolve, uh, different solutions, uh, because every landscape was different. But we engaged in that dialogue, which was really important. But uh, business had the will in order to engage in those solutions. And the political will uh, to engage in those solutions and in that dialogue is absolutely important. We can't stop, I mean, we have to stop this, um, you know, these political statements about, uh, you know, changing the police force is going to reduce crime. You know, that riles up a certain part of the population. 
And the business community, we're all tired of that. You know, we want solutions. We're willing to come to the table. And uh, these different uh, campus center of support ecosystems, there's global examples related to that. Uh, there, there's uh, solutions related to funding those types of centers. Not everything has to come from government. And uh, if, we, if we just collaborated, if we dialogued more um, with all of these different providers, uh, I think we would go that much further. Crime is never going to be eliminated. We came together for the Olympics in 2010. We made it great. Yes, there were problems here and there. Um, but, um, you know, right now we need to focus on the livability of our cities. We need to focus on when we're building housing in our respective cities, that it's not only about housing, we're creating an ecosystem for our youth, our newcomers, um, arts and culture investments, um, programs that are open until 11 o'clock at night uh, that our youth can engage in. Um, and, and business is willing to come to the table to support those types of initiatives. I think you were involved with one of my colleagues in the uh, Surrey RCMP at Trevor Dinwiddie with the 135A Street project that brought together BC Ambulance, probation, Surrey businesses, the RCMP, uh, and, and basically mental health outreach. And basically they, they, they created um, a leading model for looking at homelessness, looking at vocational mm -hmm. training, giving opportunities to people who appear to be the downtrodden and forgotten of, of the communities, and basically proactively went out there with all of the resources and the support of the community to sit back and say, what can we do for you? How can we help you? Versus incarcerating or looking at remand or looking at any kind of thing. And it's, I, I know Trevor has been down to all over the country through North America presenting on this particular different initiative. It was extremely successful, but it had the will and the support of the community as well as the businesses in that community because they saw the benefit. So it does come back to the point where we all have to be working together. We all, and is this not at the heart of uh, Sir Robert Peel's philosophy around policing, that we all have a responsibility? Yeah, and I think that the important point for me, and I'm well aware of that very successful project, is that, and that's one of the things that we recommended, was that there needs to be a lot more collaboration. And, you know, police are frustrated that they feel like the, all the responsibility for repeat offenders has been downloaded on them. And what we pointed out is that when people work together, multi-agencies, and try and identify what the underlying issue is for the person, whether it's addiction or mental health issues or whatever it is, and they can get them the right services in a timely way, it can have a very significant impact. And when that model has been tried and assessed uh, by academics, SFU, for example, in BC, and I've seen like 40% reductions uh, in offending. So it is that collaboration and but as we wrote about, there needs to be services to divert people to. When there's a lack of services, then everybody's you know, throwing up their hands and saying, well, what do we do with this person? We know what's needed, but the services aren't there. And I think Amanda and I would agree that the number one thing that has to occur though is that the housing issue needs to be dealt with because everything starts with housing, the right kind of housing for the right people because the homelessness 
is so connected with drug addiction and mental health, and it's really driving that low-level aggression and street crime that is what's really frustrating people in downtown cores of cities across BC, even very small communities. So I'm gonna challenge you here, Kim, and same with Dan. What role does the media play in helping us to be able to change the narrative? Well, Dan should go first. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think one of the issues is we have a lot fewer reporters in the city than we had 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So, uh, for example, you know, you talk about one of the uh, one of the reasons why someone is held in custody is the reputation of you know the administration of justice is, has to be maintained. But if people aren't covering the cases, they're not covering the bail hearings. Well, they don't have to worry about the reputation, right? Because there's no witness there in the courtroom that well, not that we're usually allowed to report on bail hearings anyway, but you can report the outcome. So um, I do think that um, you know we do have a responsibility to be more nuanced in our reporting, because I think anyone who has a stranger attack, even if they're not injured, can get their story on the news, in the newspaper, on radio, where the harder things to write about are, you know, kind of the reasons why things are happening, right? To, to kind of get into the backstory of why a situation has unfolded as it has unfolded. Um, and I think we need to do more of that. And I think we need to pay more attention to gangs and organized crime. I don't like being the only one out there doing it, basically. Well, uh, is there not a bit of a perception? Oh, well, they're just killing one another. So we, well, we don't have to worry about them. And is that not why people have said, okay, let them kill, them, uh, kill themselves? Well, we heard that said here tonight. I just could not disagree more. I mean, this is violence. It's the worst violence imaginable. We have young people that are willing to... Uh, be hired hitmen, hit boys in some cases, uh, for $50,000. Their life is ruined. They've killed someone. Maybe they haven't killed the right person even. So this is a big issue. And if we've fallen so far as a society that we don't think taking someone else's life is a big deal because that guy wasn't good either, I think that's a serious problem. You know, yeah. Just touch on that. You know, when it comes to the South Asian community that media-wise leads disproportionately are covered uh, uh, for uh, the dramatic shootings. That's that's another unspoken kind of component of the system. I'm all for dialogue and all that, but there's a lack of accountability in the system. I mean, police are held accountable to the highest standards, you know, from all sorts of different oversights, media. But you know, when it comes to gang violence, and there's a part of the healthcare system, a lot of these families uh, could be South Asian, could be ethnic, uh, other ethnic groups there is a lack of customized delivery on uh, helping that family. And I talked to Doug about this before we talked, uh, you know, leading up to the report. You know, a lot of these kids have mental health issues, anxiety, learning disabilities, addiction issues. Uh, you know, they get drawn into a group that they shouldn't because they're mentally uh, not as strong because of things going on in the house. That's a gap in the system. And when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, compassion and helping uh, and incarceration, uh, there has to be some balance there on holding the system, system accountable for everybody. So we're not getting this disproportionate. Uh, this province is very diverse. And I've said it for years. It's uh, the healthcare system and all the poverty and all the responses have to be uh, uh, representative for all. Just to, to Kim's point, though, I just want to be clear that 
uh, and maybe I didn't say it as well as I could have, is that, that there is that perception created in the public, but I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, I mean, and you know, everything is interconnected. And as you pointed out, I mean, what they're supplying is the death that's down on the street in the downtown east side of Vancouver. So the high level gang activity and the murders that we see in fighting over territory and that sort of thing, it is completely connected to the street level crime and violence and destruction that we see with people becoming addicted to fentanyl and, the, and uh, meth and the violence that that is producing. So it is all connected and you can't solve one problem without looking at the big picture and, and yeah, I mean, the number of lives that have been ruined and lost and families, it, it's a tragedy. Dan, I'm not letting you off the hook here. Um, what, what role can media play? How can we focus in on those kinds of issues that bring accountability across the system uh, the same way that we hold police accountable, but also that celebrate uh, successful outcomes? Well, as always, I agree entirely with everything that Kim said. So I can, that's it. No, just kidding. But um, I do, I, you know, I think Kim has a really important point about, um, you know, as she touched on earlier, that all of these different things are interconnected. And as Doug was saying, you know, you can't look at crime and street disorder without looking at housing. And the housing system is is a big, complex, interconnected system. So I think the media can hopefully try to do a better job of explaining how all the, all the pieces matter. All of these things are connected. It's, it's you know, throughout the province, the country, um, each of these individual cities, these different institutions in different parts of the city, um, and whether they're failing or succeeding. Um, yeah, we need to kind of understand how they interact with each other, because at the end of the day, the public needs to understand this better. And because that's the voting public. And these are the people that might try to put pressure on governments to change whatever things need to be changed. So yeah, I think the media has a big, big role to play here. Um, I think it's very the media's role is really important here. I think we always need to try to do a better job. Um, and, you know, it's really uh, to have sort of quick one off stories, as Kim said, you know, if someone gets a strange, you know, someone, a random innocent person is assaulted on the street. And especially if maybe somebody has a cell phone video of that, this is a kind of video that didn't exist a few years ago, but now that's going to make for some pretty compelling uh, a compelling news story online or on TV. Um, and it's, you know, important to hear those kinds of stories, but they're often not really going to explain or help people understand sort of the interconnected nature of these very different issues and different failings in society. So those stories can be appealing and people are going to read them. Um, but we also want to do, try to do a more nuanced job of explaining how these things are connected and then just finally in terms of the media i think steve's point about how you know vancouver and metro vancouver and bc it's very in very uh multicultural society and i think sometimes the english language media in vancouver doesn't do the best job of understanding and covering and showing what's happening in our non-english speaking communities considering what an important and big and vibrant, important part of Vancouver and BC, these communities are, I think sometimes, um, and you know, there are some great examples of, of good coverage, but I, it's something in my own coverage, I, I, I feel like I need to try to do more to understand 
you know, these there's significant parts of our city and our province that um, that sometimes aren't always uh, as well covered as they could be. And so, yeah, as always, I think, you know, we, we need to try to do more thoughtful coverage, but also, yeah, hold these institutions and organizations to account whenever possible. And if certain kinds of outcomes and results are happening, that people need to know about that. And at least people need to be aware of what's happening. I'm going to come to your defense a little bit there, Dan. If only you had the resources. You're working in mainstream media, which is seeing its whole business model collapse. There aren't as many reporters. There aren't those opportunities to do the same thing. We respond to the way in which the world reacts to news. You know, we're driven to, to look at the news that's going to scare us, but we don't read the news that says something, good things are happening. You know, you talk about Vancouver still being... Uh, a good place to live. Uh, I had a boss once who uh, at BCTV who used to go around saying, go out and catch somebody doing something right. Go out and catch them doing something good for someone else. Why don't you take that video and put it on Instagram or put it up, uh, put it up on, a, on a noteboard. You know, I, I think we all play a role and I, I'm as guilty as the next. Um, so how do we find those kinds of solutions? And this is where I think that business in some ways can play a role, um, but there's no one element that's, that's the answer. John, like, what can you bring to the equation? Because uh, I know you've tried. Mm -hmm. uh, like, it's not like you're saying I'm, I'm fed up. You try. No, I mean, I keep opening stores, so I'm not <laughs> giving up. Um, I am encouraged by a tremendous amount of great customers and great staff and people that are living through these kind of things, but they do need support. Um, it, we, we haven't talked about safe inject, injection sites, uh, but my, it, the challenge for me is always tried to keep morale up with my staff. So I now have nine needle boxes, nine of my stores have needle boxes. So I'm not sure why we need needle boxes when they put in these safe injection sites. Maybe someone can explain it to me, but um, people are in, are more, they're, they're injecting themselves more in my bathrooms than they ever have, and yet they're safe injection sites. So I'm wondering, maybe it's not a great use of resources if they're choosing not to use the safe injection sites. Um, but what am I doing? I, I, I mean, we are involved in a lot of different people. I've, I've worked with Mission Possible over the past, which is an organization I want to give a big shout out on the downtown east side. They take people that are, re, you know, work with rehabilitation on them. They've got a number of contracts in the city of Vancouver for graffiti removal and maintenance and stuff. But they take people right out of the Vancouver East side and give them jobs. So that's not just like give them a house. Give them, they give them a job. They give them a reason. Um, and I just think this, the organization itself is, is amazing. And I've uh, met with them a number of times and, and think they do a, a great job. But we need... Uh, we also need, we have so many resources on the deck. I, I had an office for 12 years down in, on Railtown, just on the outskirts of Gastown. And um, the number of resources that are out there, but they're not linked together. They're all doing this, their own thing. And they don't even know what the other's doing. And the, I think the government, I'm not, and government and private individuals are pouring money at these things, but there's no no uh, body that's putting them all together and saying we should do, you know, that that's duplicitous. We're doing that over there. Um, you know, whether or not 
we need, uh, I should ask the union guy about this, do we need less firemen and more paramedics? Um, <laughs> to, to what you were saying earlier, but I'm sure you don't want to make that statement. But uh, <laughs> There you go, that's perfect. Anyway. Um, Amanda, I saw you nodding, like about all these different agencies that are there to help, um, but they're not working in a coordinated manner. How important is that? Yeah, I mean, we, we did certainly hear a little bit about that when we were speaking to nonprofits. I think that there are a lot of organizations doing really incredible work. So many passionate people who are so driven to help um, people with highly complex needs. But uh, there are challenges with organizations working together. There's also lots of organizations competing for the same very small pots of funding. And there's not a whole lot of um, governance structure to support them uh, working together and working collaboratively, but we see that exact same problem in government, right? We heard the same things, not just between the health and justice systems, but even within the justice system and within the health system that we continue to have these silos. And it's fundamentally associated just with the way that our systems um, are, are unfortunately structured. We don't have, uh, you know, a good framework to really support true kind of collaboration on the ground. So I certainly agree with that point. I mean, um, you know, with respect to things like harm reduction and, and safe in injection sites. I mean, the, the literature, the research is very clear on the utility of those for, um, you know, reducing harms associated with communicable diseases and um, all of those things. But the reality is that not everybody is going to be using in the downtown east side or, or in one area. And I can't speak to, you know, specifically to why, you know, people are using, you know, in, in your stores. But, um, you know, I, I'm definitely a staunch advocate of uh, harm reduction. And, uh, and, and we know very much that people benefit from those services. But what I would like to see is that, um, people also have uh, other types of services that are available to them to help them with their mental health and substance use needs. I mean, we don't even have the basics of evidence-based services covered under MSP for mental health conditions, right? You can't even see a counselor or a therapist and have that covered. So we still have a situation where people who are privileged or who have private insurance um, can access the best quality care and, and those who, who, who don't unfortunately can't. And so those are the structural pieces I think that we need to get at. And unfortunately, when we're in this crisis state, redirecting the conversation back to those systemic issues feels as though you're being dismissive um, because right. we're in the face of these huge challenges and people are dying. And so when you say we have to get back to these like seismic shifts that we need to see in poverty reduction and how we support vulnerable children in schools in in housing and how we support single uh, parents with kids at home who are trying to work four jobs just to pay for their homes and their food. But if we don't drive those conversations, you're going to have another panel here five years from now talking about these these same issues. So I, I hope that in, in addition to these kind of urgent responses that we need, that we continue to drive the conversation around the upstream um, and systemic problems so that people can actually have the basics they need to live good lives and be well. And we just, we don't have that right now in, in BC. You know, unpopular perspective. <laughs> the union guy, <laughs> agree with what you're saying, but you know, uh, former chief and uh, deputy chief here um, have to argue and, um, reconcile and make cases for an adequate police budget. And here in Vancouver, obviously last year, it was a challenging year that ultimately ended up going to the province and reinstating some funding. So we're talking about, again, the first responders that are the last ones standing, and we're expecting them to do it all. And then we criticize them for everything they do, and they have to beg, borrow, and steal for the money to get it done. And they are held accountable for every dollar that they spend. 
However, on the other hand, we have a whole bunch of money. Nobody really knows how much that the communities across BC and in the Lower Mainland are contributing to all of these different harm reduction, vocational training um, uh, uh, programs with very little accountability. And, and you know, you'll see everything that we've documented, we've submitted to the province, we've submitted on whether they're budget submissions or anything on, 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 on different uh, uh, law projects, and I'm appearing a couple of days from now to do another one. Um, we talk about sustained, effective funding to community partnership initiatives, but that comes with some accountability. We have to make sure that the money that we, Canadians, British Columbians, Vancouverites, are spending via our tax dollars going towards harm reduction initiatives are actually effective. Mm -hmm. The police have to account for it, right? I have to account to my board and my membership about every dollar that I spend in a union. Why doesn't, I don't know, Covenant House, have to report back to the province for every dollar that they spend. And I'm just picking that because it was the first one off the top of my head. I'm not pointing fingers. <laughs> um, a lot of good work being done there. But if there was some accountability and transparency, then perhaps we as a community could determine that the money's better spent here, the money's better spent there, or we need more um, uh, transition beds here, or we need job training there, and we can allocate our funding better, right? Versus just continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So, well, and I don't disagree with anything you've said, but I guess it's from working so much together because as Amanda was saying those words, I was thinking those words uh, because notwithstanding, you know, the lack of accountability that we see in some cases and the, you know, the million dollars a day being spent in the downtown east side without accountability and, all the rest of it. I think that the bigger issue is that governments have a you know a four or five year cycle or whatever. Mm -hmm. right. And what we have said is that there really needs to these be these courageous long term investments in those issues that Amanda just articulated because we're focusing on the wrong end. If we think that focusing after all the problems have been created and that we're going to solve them with policing and the courts and prosecution. Well, we're not. That's never been shown to be true. Uh, prevention, the police know, you know, better than most that prevention is far more cost effective. And if we in make long-term investments and use the money wisely, not stupidly, um, to deal with those upstream drivers of crime around poverty and homelessness and addiction and mental health, you know, right back, you know, right down to the, you know, level of supporting uh, pregnant mothers who come from difficult circumstances so that they have a chance, you know, at a decent life and a decent life for those children. Those are the resources that will be the best spent mm -hmm. uh, in terms of solving the problems that we're talking about today. So I have been down around the downtown east side for uh, most of my working career. And when I first showed up as a young man, I was shocked at what I saw. What I saw then versus what I see today are worlds apart. Um, I was just down on Hastings Street four or five days ago. And it is, uh, it's unnerving. Uh, it really is unnerving. And I worry now, are we, are we on a slide that we can't find the bottom for. And we're already like moving into extra time right now. So why don't we end on that thought? Do you think that we can find a bottom and, and find our way out of this? Or, you know, is pessimism about where we're going 
going to be the order of the day. Kim, let me start with you. I'm optimistic. I wouldn't be a reporter after almost 40 years if I didn't think it meant something to write about issues and inform the community who can perhaps elect people and where change comes, right? I mean, we all want there to be change. I think there can be. And there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of good programs in the downtown east side as well. And Covenant House is a registered charity and you can look up their budget on the government's website. You know, like there is accountability, right? It might not be to the degree that, you know, uh, a policing budget has to be submitted to, you know, the, the city of Vancouver. Um, but I do think there's a lot of good work being done. I do think there needs to be more coordination. I do think that barriers need to be broken down because I feel like there's a lot of distrust right now, even between people I admire who are doing work down there and police. And Doug, I think back to the early days of the missing women, right? And you think of the level of distrust that existed uh, in the 90s over you know, the women that were disappearing on the streets and their families feeling like police didn't take them seriously. And, you know, then there are a lot of changes and you wrote an excellent report, right? And I, I feel like we almost need that kind of reckoning now to get people together, you know, the agencies, uh, the representatives of, um, you know, the, the camp on Hastings with police. Like we need to build some bridges because there's so much distrust and hostility right now. I just think it's unfortunate, but I do think it's at the bottom and the only place it can go up, go from here is up. Anita? I'm hopeful, um, you know, what we really need uh, as an example, we have a housing shelter uh, that was uh, invested in, partly funded by government uh, in Surrey and uh, but the services uh, of support are not there so we're seeing a proliferation of additional homeless uh, individuals as a result of whatever situation they may be facing um, you know we all have an opportunity and, and a role to report it um, to the public safety uh, of jurisdiction uh, so that they know where to apply the resources. But we also need these service agencies, and there's so many of them in Surrey, um, although the, also those that serve our newcomer populations, but they all need to come together. And I think that's the missing element, but I remain hopeful uh, now with the election over uh, that we can all come together and, uh, and, and do the real work that is needed um, and to ensure those housing investments are not only about housing and shelter, but it's about support for, because every single person matters eventually in this economy. You remain positive. Steve? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think there's a lot of compassion in our society. Uh, even from business leadership, I hear compassion. You know, you're struggling, you're, you want to do uh, the right thing for your employees, but I think holistically throughout our society in this province, there's a lot of compassion to what's happening to people down there. Those were people's sisters and brothers, and they had, were professionals at one point, they went off the rails. And I think with that compassion, we'll get it done. Housing is now top of mind for everyone. I just think we need to take uh, an apolitical approach to it. and. Unfortunately, some of the tragedy down there has become politicized, and that's why it meanders around. But I think we're just on that cusp of uh, saying enough is enough. 
uh, across the board. You feel a change, do you? I feel the change that, look at us all talking about it. We're not vilifying anybody down there. Uh, we're, you know, it's a, it's a tragic situation all around. They consider themselves a community. Uh, we've never talked about housing like we talk about now, right? I mean, even from the biggest business leaders in this province, we're talking about, we're gonna build condos, we're gonna support social housing with it. We're gonna, Doug mentioned, you know, we gotta, people have to, when you put a roof over someone's head, even if it's a hundred square feet, that breeds, you know, uh, self-esteem and, and safety, and, and that starts a change in somebody's life, uh, lifestyle. But there's compassion to get it done. Uh, we just need to take the politics out of that decision making, and I think we're there almost. Dan, what's your assessment on where we're at? Are we still sliding? Have we bottomed out, or do you think that there's an opportunity uh, now for us to turn things around and, and really see some improvement? Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm hopeful uh, a lot of things are going to get better. I, I think it has just been my perception. Um, I feel like just the last few years in Vancouver and BC, it has really kind of been an age of anxiety. And, uh, you know, the, the housing and homelessness crises uh, have been just getting worse and worse, despite immense efforts from different levels of government. And, you know, we've got this overdose epidemic, poisonous drugs are killing tons of our neighbors and family and friends and really good people who are dying. You know, it's killed way more people than COVID. Overdoses have killed way more people than the pandemic. And the pandemic has been horrific. And so that's obviously something that has had a huge impact on society. So a lot of these issues that we're talking about here are not unique to the downtown east side or Vancouver or Metro Vancouver or BC or Canada. We're hearing about a lot of similar challenges in urban environments in, across North America and other parts of the world. And it does kind of feel like this a very anxious, difficult age. Uh, I do hope we're going to sort of come out of it with a more healthy, uh, positive society. But I mean, Kim touched on, you know, the tension between different groups. There's a lot of distrust of institutions and distrust of organizations, including in the media, people, a lot of people don't trust trust the media as much as we wish they did. Um, so I do feel like it's a very difficult age. People are stressed out and afraid. And so hopefully our leaders can, and uh, everyone else as a society can, as, as everyone else has kind of touched on, come together um, instead of going at each other, come together and to try to sort of steer towards a better resolution. But, you know, as Deputy Chief Rye said, I do feel like there is a lot of compassion from all corners as well. So yeah, hopefully we can work together on trying to make things better. Brian, do you, on behalf of your members, sense that there is a, a change that people are feeling as though by working together, we can, we can find that bottom and turn this around? Always. Uh, first off, I apologize to Covenant House. Um, um, I, I own up to my mistakes, um, and and but 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 yeah, I, I I'm just I'm just hopeful that the conversations aren't lost, right? And you know I'm I'm hopeful that your target audience is between 18 and 34 because those are the ones that are going to live with the results of this discussion today, um, and and uh, you know and I'm also hopeful that 
all the branches of government actually realize that, you know, um, we're asking too much of police and police, whether it's Vancouver, whether it's Calgary, whether it's the RCMP in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, or here in British Columbia, are at a resource crisis level. So if we continue to ignore or push or punt this ball down the field because it's not politically feasible to address the issue today, then you're going to see nobody's going to want to be a cop anymore. And what do we do when we don't have the applicants coming through the door to replace those who are retiring? So in order to create the environment where a life of service, which is an extremely fun, rewarding career for anyone in that 18 to 34 age group, target audience, VPD's hiring, the RCMP's hiring, and you can have a lot of fun and enjoy your career. Um, if we're creating an environment where nobody wants to go there, we're in trouble. So we really need to talk about um, what that looks like, how much we're demanding them to give, how we hold them accountable, whether it be in 280 characters or less, or through a civilian oversight process, um, and ultimately have the resources in place so that cops can focus on crime prevention, organized crime, all of those things that we think about law enforcement does versus being your catch-all. So optimist, definitely. I'm seeing a little bit um, of media that I wouldn't expect starting to draft and pen articles to the support of the profession of policing. Um, and I'm starting to see uh, a bit of a change of the tone of different articles and different pieces out there. Uh, and you know, I'm thankful for that, uh, not necessarily for Kim or for Dan, but you know, different uh, pieces across the country. So always an optimist. Um, it's just I don't think we can take our foot off the gas pedal. We need to continue down. Doug and Amanda, I'm going to come to you to ask you to wrap up, but John, your thoughts on where we're at right now, because yeah, I, you, you vote with your investment in opening a store. Uh, I, I would really like to say we're near the bottom, but I've had three store break-ins in the last four weeks, more than I've ever had. Hopefully that's just weird. <laughs> that's just a, but I am a very optimistic person. My priority, I, I know that uh, a lot is expected of the business community. Like, we are, our taxes, and if, we, if we're not successful, then there's way less municipal taxes to support all of what we're talking about. So it is key that we are successful and that there's an environment where, you know, we can, like if, as you were saying, that you need more police officers. Well, if we can't keep our stores open, then those are tax dollars that are gone. And the number of vacancies in the city of Vancouver right now is staggering. The number of calls I'm going, I'm getting, hey, why don't you open a coffee shop here? No way, no way, I'm not gonna do that. You, are you, do you provide a security guard? What? But my number one priority, Stu, has to be, um, number one is my staff, they have to feel safe. My staff feel safe, forget about the customers, they're not gonna feel safe, but I have, my staff have to be safe. 
And I'd like, you know, you, you might be asking, so what am I doing about that? Well, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear all these things. I'm encouraged there's dialogue. I'd like to say we're at the bottom, but I, there's nothing, there's no evidence that shows me that yet. There's no evidence that shows me that yet. And um, you're an optimist. I am an optimist. I'm continuing to open stores, but not in the city of Vancouver. Ah. I've opened, my, my recent stores have been uh, Burnaby, um, Coquitlam, and those last two. So, uh, two in Burnaby, sorry, two in Burnaby, one in Coquitlam. And neither one of them's had a break-in. It's been great. And the staff are not complaining to me about feeling unsafe. We have to change the store hours because I'm feeling unsafe. So, the, the staff, if I don't have staff, I don't have customers. So, Doug and Amanda, I'm going to get you to uh, wrap up for us about where your perceptions are. Well, just having <coughs> completed the I'm report. slightly optimistic, and like Kim, I've been around long enough to have seen the cycles in crime and that sort of thing, and I'm sure. Kim, remember, I mean, in 1982, we had over 40 murders in Vancouver. In 1996, we had over 40 murders in Vancouver. I remember 44 shots being fired in front of the Trev Dealey, you know, motorcycle dealership as the Russians and the Hells Angels were battling it out. And so we've seen bad waves of serious violence. What we haven't seen is the level of disorder and dysfunction in our downtown cores. I've never seen it that bad. And I think that we should not underestimate how profound the impact of the pandemic has been on society generally, but no one has been more affected but than the most vulnerable people like that we see in the downtown east side. And not only that, uh, there's been this twin pandemic of the opioid crisis. And so, you know, what we heard was, you know, a lot of these people, not only have they not been able to access services and, you know, we can't get staff for them and that sort of thing, but a lot of their friends have died because six people are dying, you know, every day from opioid overdoses. So this is a really traumatized uh, population. And as I said earlier, I mean, there's little things that we can do around the edges and the justice system has a role to play. But if we're not going to deal with resolving these underlying issues and I think that we can dig ourselves out but it's going to take a while because the damage has been so great no one could have controlled the pandemic um, but there's been a lot of damage and it's going to take a while to dig ourselves out but I have to say you know Amanda and I talked to you know nonprofits, for example that were their work was so inspiring it would bring a tear to your eye like there is, there are very effective programs out there that can deal with people that you would think they are a lost cause. And one of the things that we recommend is, wow, there's these best practices out there and they say themselves, but they're not talking to each other. You know, if the government would support more coordination and finding out what the best practices are that are actually working that could be emulated and scaled up to help the most vulnerable populations, that will be far more effective than, as I say, trying to arrest our way out of it, which is becoming less and less effective. Mm -hmm. Amanda, are you feeling hopeful or do you 
think that we found the bottom. I mean, I think we, we have to remain hopeful. I would never want us to get to a position where we just throw our hands up and say we're going to stop trying to help vulnerable people or solve systemic uh, issues. I think, you know, as, as Doug said, what's happening now, this may be fundamentally different from some of the uh, waves of crime in the past or more organized crime is really what we're seeing now is like chronic social deprivation. We have allowed our communities to get to a point where, you know, we, we, we don't see the same level of community cohesion. Uh, so many people cannot afford housing. They can't afford groceries. Um, you know, people are really struggling and there's been a lot of collective trauma, I think, over the past uh, few years. And, you know, we had the, the, the leader of the Green Party talking to the legislature, uh, you know, this week or, or last week about, you know, increases in social disability. Like we were people who, um, you know, are on assistance are, are living in poverty. And that's been, you know, the case for a long time. So this didn't happen overnight. I think um, the leader of the opposition is hoping that there's maybe going to be some collective amnesia about the role that the, the liberals played in decimating the kinds of social programs that actually help keep people safe, because all of those things are related to public safety. Um, and so I, I think for sure we have to stay optimistic but the reality is that it's going to be expensive. Like we need to invest in facilities and resources that are not going to be cheap. And we're going to have to accept that both, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. our communities and our politicians. We really need to see some bold, courageous action around um, planning for things that are going to inevitably go beyond election cycles. So, you know, for example, in, in the UK, one of their mental health plans was a 10 year plan. It wasn't two years. It was this is what we ho hope to achieve in a decade because that's how long it's going to take. And so, um, again, these things are, are not going to change overnight. But, yeah, I think that we have to remain hopeful and continue to have these conversations and ideally elect the right people to uh, do the work. So, Well, this kind of conversation is important because it does continue to bring forward what the issues are and how we can look to find uh, solutions. We're way over time. Um, we could keep talking. Uh, I want to thank you all for uh, being here tonight and having this conversation. We'll be putting it out uh, on the Vancouver Sun website. We'll cut up uh, snippets and they'll go out on social media because we want to be able to keep this discussion going. And I want to thank all those people who sent in questions you helped to inform how I was going to you know, continue to guide this conversation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to our sponsors um, and for all of you, your time tonight. <laughs>